Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Podcast One presents Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. The ultimate insider's scoop on the best new books. Every week, Kirkus brings you author interviews, recommendations from the bestseller lists, and insights into books that are not yet on your radar. Hi, I'm Megan Labrice, editor-at-large of Kirkus Reviews. Welcome to another episode of Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining us. My guest today is Ilion Wu, author of Master, Slave, Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom, out now from Simon & Schuster. This is the amazing true story of Ellen and William Craft, a loving couple who escaped enslavement in Georgia in 1848 by disguising themselves as a wealthy, ill young man and his devoted slave. Wife Ellen posed as the master and husband William as a slave. By steamboat, stagecoach, and railroad, they made their way from Macon, Georgia to relative safety in Philadelphia and beyond. The craft's incredible triumph is obviously resonating with readers. Master Slave Husband Wife debuted at number seven on the New York Times bestseller list. Kirkus calls it an engaging tale of one enslaved couple's journey to freedom and a love that conquered all. Here's a bit more from our starred review. Along their journey from Macon, Georgia, and up through Philadelphia, Boston, and Halifax, the crafts evaded nosy onlookers and determined slave catchers working under the aegis of the Fugitive Slave Act. They also joined the abolitionist speaking circuit. Speaking to packed halls, they risked being caught and returned to their owners, one of whom was Ellen's half-sister. Throughout, Wu's narrative is suspenseful and wonderfully told, a captivating tale that ably captures the determination and courage of a remarkable couple. Ilyan Wu is the author of The Great Divorce, a 19th-century mother's extraordinary fight against her husband, the Shakers, and her times. She received a Whiting Creative Nonfiction Writing Grant for Master Slave Husband Wife. She has written for the Boston Globe and the Wall Street Journal, among others. And she holds a BA in the Humanities from Yale College and a PhD in English from Columbia University. After the break, Ilion Wu joins us to discuss Master Slave Husband Wife. This message is brought to you by Joe Brunini, author of Never a Cloud. Never a Cloud charts the course of three women, Violet, Ava, and Margot, who find their way into a new understanding of home and family at Oderburn, an estate in rural Scotland. Violet Gray, a child of the 60s, writes from an island in Maine as the novel travels between Scotland, New York City, and Venice, Italy. Otterburn belongs to George Gardner and Margot Reed, who is the half-sister of Violet's daughter, Ava. This is something Margot discovers only when Ava unexpectedly arrives. Their host, George, a director at the Metropolitan Museum, finds himself under suspicion for illicit activity while Margot has reconnected with her childhood sweetheart, who is helping restore the worn-at-the-edges Regency Manor, where secrets long forgotten and those newly discovered converge. Kirkus Reviews called it, quote, Brunini's prose is often evocative, end quote. Readers can find Never a Cloud on Amazon in hardback, paperback, and Kindle. This message is brought to you by Karen Mickelson, author of The Menaid's God, Boston, 1992. 
Pete Mara was a misanthropic FBI agent whose only escape from the colleagues and society he despises is through reading literary classics. When his boss sends him to warn away a drug dealer on an obscure army base, he discovers a murder and becomes obsessed with Jade McClellan, a mysterious man from Toronto whose rock band just performed at the crime scene. Tough guy Morrow has never been in love before, but Jade is almost magical, an embodiment of myth and literature who creates living fantasies that rapidly become the only thing Morrow values in his otherwise miserable life. A seamless blend of thriller, dark satire, magical realism, forbidden LGBTQ plus romance, and myth, The Menaid's God is the story of a spiritual war that's been fought for thousands of years, the war between the ancient arts of music, poetry, and love, and the equally ancient forces of artistic envy, oppressive law, and authoritarian religion. Kirkus Reviews called it, quote, an engaging, snaking, and spirit-tinged murder tale about obsession and control, end quote. Readers can find The Menaid's God on Amazon in hardback, paperback, and Kindle. Welcome, Ilian, to Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm beside myself. Master Slave Husband Wife was such a powerful read. And first things first, I want to congratulate you on hitting the bestseller list. Lucky number seven, I saw. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. So this is a story that's obviously already resonating with readers. And I want to ask by means of introduction uh, today, Mm -hmm. how it came to resonate with you. I mean, you share in a note on sources at the back of the book that you first encountered the crafts as a graduate student. Mm -hmm. I did. And, you know, I didn't really have the vocabulary to talk about this until actually I heard a podcast of yours the other day. Oh. Yes. Oh, my. (laughs) But it really kind of landed with me. So this experience I had, you know, in the library, it's one that, you know, I get this question a lot, but I really try to like center in on that moment of what it felt like to read because it was really like an epiphanic moment for me. Mm. And it's an experience that I could, I could feel in my body. I could hear the voice in my ear. I can remember the room that I was in and the look of the page. I mean, it was really like reading in all dimensions. I felt inspired. I felt excited. But what I realize now is that the word for this is awe. And I mm. realized that when I was listening to your interview with Dacker, is that how you pronounce it? Keltner? Yes. Yes. And he's talking is. about his studies on awe. And when he's, you, I think you ask him like, how do you know that you're experiencing awe? And so he's going through this kind of like symptom checklist. Yeah. And I felt this like slow tingle up my spine as I recognized each of those things and what he was describing. I was like, that's it. That's what I felt when I read the narrative. And that's what I felt in the archives is just this feeling of awe. Wow. Thank you for sharing that with me. (laughs) I'm so pleased to hear that. And Mm. so how did we go from the feeling of awe on encountering the craft's own narrative, which is called Mm -hmm. Running a Thousand Miles for Freedom? What propelled you on your journey into discovering more and more about them and into writing this book, Master Slave, Husband, Wife? Mm -hmm. Well, that feeling of awe, like one of the qualities of awe that he identifies is this feeling of humility that comes Mm. from being in the presence of something much bigger than yourself. And he was careful to say, this is not like a depressing feeling. It's not a bad feeling. It's just, you know, that feeling of being awestruck. Um, And I guess probably wonder is a close cousin. And I felt that the vastness of their story and their telling of the story 
And at the same time, there were things that the story didn't tell and that, that the story left out. And I guess what I set out to do was try to figure out some of those missing pieces. That's mm. where I sort of went on this like awe-filled journey through the archives and and in, in time and space as I visited lots of different places to try to to conjure the sights and the smells and the sounds and that awe that I felt myself reading this narrative and feeling the vastness of this history. Hmm. I think that this would be an appropriate time for us to get into maybe a little bit of a capsule description of this awesome journey <laughs> of, of mutual emancipation undertaken mm-hmm. by this enslaved couple. So could you please give us a little background on William and Ellen Craft and what happened? Yes. So William and Ellen Craft were an enslaved couple living in Macon, Georgia. So they, this was, um, they, they met in the 1840s, and they actually postponed their love affair, their marriage, for a long time because Ellen did not want to replicate the traumas that she had suffered in childhood by having children in slavery herself. 1848 comes along, and they have they have this inspirational plan. And by this plan, although they they are husband and wife, they decided to disguise themselves as master and slave. Now it's Ellen who is very fair skinned um, thanks to an inheritance from her Mm. father, who was also her first enslaver. It's Ellen who takes on the guise of an enslaver, not only an enslaver, but a wealthy white male enslaver. And Mm. it's William who plays the part of her slave. So they conceive of this plan, they say, about four days before they make their journey. And then they make this incredible journey over four more days from Macon across the states, Macon, Georgia, to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And that's kind of just the beginning. Yeah, but by my thumbnail sketch I've got from Macon, please correct me if I'm wrong, to Savannah, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. to Charleston, Mm-hmm. Through North Carolina, Virginia, D.C., Baltimore, and on to Philly and beyond. Yes, okay. yes, yeah. And and it actually was not supposed to be so many moves. Uh, this is mm. there. There are things that they planned for, but then there's so many things that come up along they, their way. They have to constantly improvise. And one of the things that happens is what is supposed to be really kind of a just a, a three part journey. They're supposed to go from Macon to Savannah by train from Savannah to Charleston by steamer, and then take another steamer from Charleston to Philadelphia. That doesn't happen because that last leg, that steamer uh, is not running at this time. And so then they have to kind of scramble and figure out, well, we're going to have to go on this other overland route. Basically, they're traveling with a mail. And that made all those stops that you identified. So many stops and switches along the way. There's, um, from my understanding of this book, a bit of a technological revolution going on at the time mm-hmm, they're traveling. Mm-hmm. How how new are these modes of conveyance? Steamboat, steam train. Yeah, these are these are really brand new. And in fact, one of the ironies of the story is that Ellen Crafts, the man who demands that she call him master, Robert Collins. Uh, of Macon, Georgia. He is a railroad entrepreneur. He is a, kind of a, a gambler. He has his hands in all kinds of different projects um, at this time. And one of the big ones is in 1843, he was responsible for 
finishing the construction or commanding the finishing of the construction of the last 20 miles of the Central Georgia Railroad, the very rails that Ellen's going to Ellen and William are going to ride together to achieve their freedom. So their story is very much entwined with the latest advances in te technology. And in fact, a lot of this knowledge, I think, that Ellen must have gained from being in this household, um, it helped her along the way. She was able to capitalize on this knowledge and use it to fuel her journey. So you have the steamboats, you have the railroad, um, you also have... Um, information technology that's just exploding at this time. So just as the railroad is is moving, there are telegraph lines that are being built alongside the railroad. So it's just a couple of years earlier that Samuel Morris has tapped out this message that, that carries news like instantaneously across all these miles. So this is like really the internet of, of, of the 1840s. And people are marveling that you the news that you that happens in one place can can arrive that same very day or that you could wake up in one part of the country and end up in another the news is moving fast and that's something that both helps the crafts and potentially hurts them i'm coming to you currently from just across the river from samuel morse's estate in dutchess county oh. <laughs> i'm in ulster <laughs> county <laughs> have you ever been i have never been there no mm -hmm. no did you have a chance to visit many of the places you write about in this book? I did. And that mm. was really essential for me to partially because, I mean, for me, like the visual is really important, mm. um, but also to get a sense of the feeling of these different places. And each of these different places carry, you know, Savannah and, and Boston, which I got to know in, a, and know in a totally different way, even though I've grown up here, um, Charleston, uh, Richmond, Philadelphia, these places really carry the weight of that history in their very, the shape of their streets, a lot of their buildings, a lot of what the craft saw firsthand are still here for us to see today. Um, and it's both kind of haunting and, and uh, wonderful. What are some more of the external forces, the external circumstances that led to their escape at this particular time in their lives? Mm, that took a really long time to sort of unravel the crafts mm. themselves. So they wrote this narrative in 1860, which, as I said, it was kind of um, an explosive and awestruck reading moment for me. But that's not something that they go into um, a great level of detail. So they open by saying that they did not want to have children who were in bondage. They didn't want to have, they didn't want it to be possible for their enslavers to reach into the cradle that they had built for their child and mm -hmm. take that child away. Um, so they began with that pain, but in terms of like, is there anything specific that set it off? Like that's, that's really kind of what I wanted to know. Like what are the, what was going on in their world? And it does take, quite a bit of the book. I don't know if I can kind of summarize that because mm. there's so many, um, you know, interwoven threads. But one yeah. thing I can say is that this uh, gambler entrepreneur, um, Robert Collins, he was making all kinds of financial wagers that, you know, at where he was putting his fortunes on the line. But directly what these fortunes took the shape of were the people that he owned by law. And when he got into financial trouble, that was cause for real fear among the people that he enslaved. And at one point, just to name, there was a list of 
tens, I, th- I think over 60 people who were up for auction in the Collins household. And I read through these names one by one. And these are people in Alan Craft's world. And her name wasn't there. She had a, a certain amount of protection, I think, from her half-sister enslaver. But the fact is that at any point, anybody's name could be on that list. Anybody could be sold. And it's the precariousness of that existence that catapults the crafts into their incredible feat of self-emancipation. Yeah, one just one of the scenes of heartbreaking horror you uncover in this book is William witnessing the day his youngest sister, Eliza, is sold in auction. Yeah. And, you know, I thought, I thought of that, you know, in the context, too, of all that compelled them to move when they did, especially if they felt threatened by that prospect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that is really sort of the emotional heart of this uh, of this book and actually originally I opened the whole book with that story it's so such a painful echoing read and 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 the sad thing is that, again as i said it, it could happen at any moment and what i actually found in the archives was a deed by which the sale would be made um effective so there there's not sorry not a deed a mortgage so you can see in the mortgage william being named and and his training being described and you can see his sister's name um you can see those names listed next to a pianoforte and very specific church pews and other objects you know in this mm-hmm. tally of property that is standing there as a wager if william crafts enslaver were to were to lose his uh, his gamble, and he does, uh, and that the the power of that paper and the power of those words to enact um, such separation, such trauma, um, is 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 pretty overwhelming to see in this very practiced and lovely nineteenth century hand the horrors that that come from those words, and so to contrast those words with the words that the crafts eventually tell and speak and publish. For me, that seeing those words against each other, it really brought to life, again, the extraordinary scope of the craft's journey and their travels from illiteracy to to being storytellers. Yeah. And and to just bring in the third stream of, you know, some of the words that sped them from the Declaration of Independence and the Bible, the Bible verse, Mm -hmm. God made of of one blood, all nations of men. And of course, from yes. the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, you know, as kind yes. of these, these twin phrases, you know, to 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 guide them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to think that they were, they had heard these words. They had heard the, yeah. declara- the Declaration of Independence was read in Macon um, without any irony, you know. Yeah. Um, the Bible was also uh, taught, although they were denied the ability to, uh, to read it. So these words were in the ether. Mm. And they, even if they couldn't read the written words, they felt the power of the spoken words. One of the, um, one of the questions you pose at the front of this book is, what is it about this unforgettable story that makes it so difficult for us as a nation to remember? Mm-hmm. I think there are a thousand answers that I could give to that question right now. But the part I want to tip into is it's hard to remember when you have an incomplete historical record that you're dealing with. And you, mm. just, sp- you just spoke that, you know, here are these people who are enslaved listed like 
common property things, pews in a church, a pianoforte. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes that those were the only words, recorded words, you would get about whole human lives. You know, yeah. you, they were represent whole lives represented by a single name or even a, a number, a price paid, an age. Yes. And you contrast this when, when you're talking about your methods in the back of the book um, a little bit, you know, you, you know that, you know, there are some of these white historical f- figures where we could find out what they had for lunch every day. Yes. I mean, we have, I found diaries, not, not William Craft's first enslaver, but his son. And mm-hmm. the son would give, he, and the son was kind of depressed. And you hear about, like, you get a full interior life of him, his relationship with his father. So with these discrepancies in the historical record, how did you find a balance between portraying the lives of people who are enslaved and enslavers? Mm-hmm. There, there are two parts to that, I guess. The first part is in the research, unfortunately, we're compelled through a lot of the archival records to go through the records of the enslavers, which are the ones that are the most abundant. But I think there are new ways to look at and squeeze those records, if you will. For example, you know, again, looking at the Hugh Craft family, I could see from what Hugh Craft was saying about his travels, where he was in time, how his family was changing, how his fortunes were changing. I could track that against William Craft's birth, you know, what was happening around the time when he was starting to learn how to walk, these sort of different kind of checkpoints in his life. So I tried to read sideways against the exi- those existing records. Sometimes the records of the enslavers give you glimpses into the people that you want to see at expected or unexpected moments. And one example of that is when I was looking at the death records of Ellen Craft's first enslaver and father, and the returns of his property, which were all tallied. In that long list, um, that kind of reckoning, you have the tallying of all the people he enslaved. And among them, you see the name Maria, and that's Ellen's mother. And you see a dollar value, that's $500. And there's very little more, but even just to glimpse her on the page and knowing that she's there in this particular year, um, by which time actually Ellen Craft is abroad, it helps to identify her in space and time. And what I ended up finding that I had to do because I couldn't find the you know abundant archival records and because the existing records could only go so far in finding Maria's life, I found that what I I could try to do was to use the story as a way to create a different kind of balance. And I'm I'm really excited about seeing how some other writers are doing this, both in fiction and nonfiction. But we can choose to tell the story in such a way that let's say Ellen Craft's mother may not get much of the stuff that Mr. Smith gets. I can't identify the things and the people in her life like I can for Mr. Smith, for whom I can, you know, I can, I can talk about, I can tell you about what her, her death was like and what her funeral was like and, you know, what she had read at her funeral and where she was buried. None of that exists for Maria, but I can weigh the story in such a way 
that the emotional life of the story is with her so that she owns the sentence or she owns the paragraph or Ellen Craft owns the chapter. And everything that we get about Mr. Smith is filtered through the lens of Ellen's own story. And I think in those ways, you know, grammatically, uh, narratively, we start to shift the balance. Wow. That, uh, thank you very much for that answer. And thank you for putting words to, you know, a reader's experience. You're a very good teacher, too. <laughs> very good teacher, too, because all of that shines through in this beautiful book. I don't want to get bogged down in my many compliments for you, though, because I insist that we talk a little bit more about Ellen, because there are a number, because, of course, this is very much a love story, and it's very yes. much the story of a couple whose relationship you call unconventional, consensual, and collaborative, which mm -hmm. I loved, a nice phrasing. Um, but there are a number, number of people along the craft's journey who are particularly smitten by Ellen, <laughs> um, and, and I am too. Uh, you write, she had crossed key lines by which people commonly define themselves and judged others, race, gender, class, and ability, all before dawn, end quote. Mm -hmm. That's very early on in the book. Can we talk about a little bit more about this and the particular complications of her various identities on this journey. Mm -hmm. I mean, isn't that incredible that yeah. she is really, I mean, when you're talking about social standing in the 19th century, she is at the bottom as an enslaved woman. Um, she has no power and she bounds from that bottom rung all the way to the very top to embody really what she might have been if uh, if she had been the legitimate son of her father and first enslaver. She becomes this wealthy white man. And she adds mm. on the skies of disability uh, for a number of reasons. And actually, it's a stroke of genius that she adds to the, dis the disguise. So that allows her to circumvent the signing of documents and things because she puts her arms in a sling. It also gives her kind of a mask because she puts poultices on her face and she puts uh, these glasses over her eyes that kind of shield her. And so she gets these kinds of protections. I mean, as an enslaved woman, illness is, is you know, that's the illness is something that would not be recognized. But in a in a white man, illness is something that gives her extra privilege. So she mm. uses all of this to cross all these lines as you identify to completely subvert the social order. Uh, it's such an awesome story. I definitely could spend all day talking with you about this book. But I think it's <laughs> we've probably reached the point in time where I'm compelled to ask you a final question, if I may. Mm -hmm. um, and it, this one will be, what is your hope for this book? Well, the big hope would be for the crafts to be recognized widely as the American heroes that they were. A more intimate hope, I think, is for both them and the people in their world. And there's so many heroes in their world. If you open up the book, you'll see all these pictures in black and white. And those are people who journeyed with them um, or who might have inspired them in some way um, or who figure into the story. I hope that all of them will be seen. I think I could tell my, do I have time to share one last story? Absolutely, yes, please do. So one thing that really moved me in doing this research and in covering the lives of these people is finding successions of people who influence or touch one another. And one of these successions happens in the form of children. 
So there's a man named Alice Gray Loring who who knows the crafts and ends up helping helping them. But this is a story about him in younger years. So he was a lawyer and he noticed a young boy, a 13-year-old boy, Robert Morris, working as a waiter. And he saw just a spark in this boy and he wanted to give this boy um, an opportunity that he didn't have before. So he arranges with this boy, Robert Morris's mother, to uh, have him join join his household to work and then eventually to work in his attorney's office. And he mentors Robert Morris to become one of the first Black lawyers in this country. But the story doesn't stop there because Robert Morris then, in 1850, right around the time uh, when all this is unfolding in the craft story, there's another young boy who's just come from Ireland and he's being bullied and beaten um, in the you know streets of Boston. He's lost his father and he's also, you know, he has a lot of personal difficulty. And somehow Robert Morris sees this boy and he will also see some kind of spark in this child and he will give this child an opportunity. And this is Patrick Collins who becomes a mayor of Boston. And you can keep tracing these lines, but the ways in which that one person can move another and create opportunity for one another, that's something that the crafts embodied. Uh, it's something that carries through these stories. And I hope that can sort of, we can draw a line to the present day. And I hope, and I truly believe that all your hopes will be fulfilled. Thank you so much, Ilyan, for reading this book, for the experience of it, and for your time today with me. It's been a pleasure to speak with you on Fully Booked. Oh, thank you. It's been wonderful to speak with you. That was Ilyan Wu, author of Master, Slave, Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom, out now from Simon & Schuster. After the break, we'll ask our editors for their top picks and books for the week. You're listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. This message is brought to you by Carl Hiltner, author of 23, Two Worlds. An ancient spacecraft orbits silently in near-absolute zero on a 105-year orbit between the planets Uranus and Neptune. The first advanced civilization on Earth was destroyed 400,000 years ago, but not before it was able to preserve the DNA record of all Earth life and the chromosomes of frozen human genetic material in the orbiting craft. Prior to the disaster, Earth has succeeded in establishing a new human settlement on Mars, with its then-human-capable atmosphere, and where an industrial and mining colony has been working for decades. The characters, Humboldt, Alfreda, Constantina, Rotfach, Schlater, Zabana, and Lieutenant Colonel Ostrom, directors, lawyers, scientists, technologists, artists, engineers, soldiers, interact professionally, socially, individually, expressing their emotions and their piquant views, desires, and regrets as they witness the loss of the old world for the new. Kirkus Reviews called it, quote, a science-besotted stellar spectacle that skillfully takes adventurous readers across eons, end quote. Readers can find 23, Two Worlds, on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. This message is brought to you by Colleen Doyle Bryant, author of Rooted in Decency. Rooted in Decency brings new light to how today's divisive culture affects our mental wellness and what we can do about it. Drawing on a broad range of sources, from neuroscience to happiness science, from Aristotle to Buddha, The author presents surprising insights in an engaging, approachable tone that can bring personal clarity or spark your next lively conversation. Find intriguing discussions like why people are so willing to believe lies, why self-respect, not self-esteem, creates lasting happiness, why some people are doing what they think is right while others think it's clearly morally wrong, and how we relate to people who don't seem to share our values. Each short chapter offers aha insights that guide readers to better understand how the current culture may be affecting their personal wellness and offers actionable steps for how we can move forward toward more cooperation and kindness. 
Kirkus Reviews called it, quote, an insightful, accessible guide to feeling good by doing good, end quote. Readers can find Rooted in Decency on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. The ultimate insider scoop on the latest books, right here on Fully Booked. We're joined now by our editors with their top picks and books for the week. We have Young Readers editors Laura Sivian and Manaz Dar, nonfiction editor Eric Liebetrau, and fiction editor Lori Muchnick. Starting with Laura, hello, what have you chosen for us? Hi, Megan. I've chosen the latest YA from Gloria Chow, and it's called When You Wish Upon a Lantern, and it is wonderful in audio. I have to say the audio version is great for all you people who like to listen to books. It's narrated by Carolyn Kang and Dylan J. Locke. And this book, it's got a bit of romance, a bit of family drama. Um, it's set in a Chinatown in Chicago. And the two main characters are Leah and Kai. And they were really close friends until a very embarrassing incident recently that that led to them avoiding each other's terrible misunderstanding, which gets cleared up by the end. Um, but what's awkward also is that their families own shops that are side by side. Leah's family has a lantern shop. If you think of the traditional um, Chinese paper lanterns that you can light and make a wish upon, hence the title. And Kai's family has a bakery and he's just this really talented baker. Um, so it's hard to avoid each other, but their families are also so feuding, there's been a dispute. And so there's there's hostility and tension between the parents as well. But Leah's family business has been struggling and she really wants to help revive this tradition she had with her late grandmother, her Nai Nai, where they would try to grant people's wishes, not in a magical way. They would just sort of, because it's this very tight knit community when they knew what people were wishing for, they would just try to, you know, do these little nudges to kind of help things along a little bit. And so Leah has to go into Kai's family bakery to buy a mooncake to help with her latest wish project. Anyway, one thing leads to another and, and you know, they, they are working together on this project and they fall in love. But alongside that, there's all the, the tension between the teens and their families over um, various things that I won't get into, but also these very loving relationships as well. And, and Chow does a really good job of showing how, you know, family can be hard, but in the end, you know, they're your family and, and things can be worked out. And one thing that really makes the book um, stand out is the Chinatown setting, because I think often Chinatown becomes this sort of almost like touristy backdrop for movies, books, and so on. And, and really, so many Chinatowns are also residential spaces. They have very long-standing communities and very close-knit ties. And so I'm a sucker for a book that has a really good setting. And I thought, for me, this one, it just really came alive through, through the portrayal of Chinatown. Sounds really lovely, Laura. And it made me think of um, a book by one of my favorite um YA romance authors, which is Sandhya Menon. It made me think of um, From Twinkle with Love because it's a book, another book where romance sparks a bit unexpectedly um, between the main character, Twinkle, 
and um, this guy that she's working with on a film project. And it's something about that shared passion that can, I think, really bring people together and sometimes in really unexpected um, in ways. That's a great read. Like, and if I remember correctly, that book also had a really good soundtrack. <laughs> Lots of yeah, uh, song I suggestions. Think it did. Yeah. Laura's pick for the week is When You Wish Upon a Lantern by Gloria Chow. Thank you, Laura, for that choice. Next, we've got Manaz. What have you chosen for us? I have chosen a book called Jump In by Shadra Strickland, which is a picture book. And um, I don't know about you, Megan, but I feel like I'm a little bit over winter. Um, you Me know, too. it's been very cool. Right. Yeah. I'm counting down the days until um, we can spring forward and get some um, sunlight. So this is really the book that is helping me get through that. Um, I spent all afternoon reading this book. And this is a book that is set either, I think, late spring or, or early summer. But it's a hot day. It's a simple premise. It's a hot day. It's a city neighborhood. And that means it's time to jump rope. So a child calls out, you know, jump in and everyone obliges. Um, everyone starts running in and everyone finds a different way of jumping into the, the ropes that expresses their personalities. So the Delancey twins, they're known as the double Dutch divas. They leap in first and they're just a whirlwind blur of braids and long limbs. Leroy is next. He's a basketball player and he's dribbling away as he jumps. It's not just for kids either. We see Miss Mabel joining in. She says, you know, you didn't think an old lady still had the skins and she tosses her purse to Leroy to hold and starts giving it her all. Even the Reverend cycles up on his bike and he joins them too. And there's a kid who's been cooped up um, indoors doing some schoolwork who's finally finished and they call down and leap in with the skateboard and with the dog. So it's just really full of fun, full of joy. Um, it's very simple in terms of story, but I just love that both visuals and text express this pure pure joy in this um, diverse but predominantly Black neighborhood. The text is so bouncy, so chantable. The kids are going to be, I think, singing along the refrain, which will make it a really good option for um, story time, read aloud. And the art, oh, there's so much to say about the art. It's the dominant hue is this golden yellow, which conveys the heat, but I think also their just sense of happiness, this pure exuberance comes through from it too. The illustrator and author Strickland talks about drawing inspiration from the Italian futurists, and she really captures that that sense of movement. Um, the textures are really vivid, the shading on the character's skin that it glistens in the heat. Um, there's a great use of shapes and pops of color in the background as characters strike different poses. Um, sometimes you'll see a character multiple times on the same page or spread in different positions, implying a sense of movement, which almost gives it a kind of sequential art comic book feel. And these are characters who are just so taken with pure joy that they can't stop moving. There's never a sense where the book ever feels slow or static. It's just pure movement, pure energy and pure happiness. And I also um, like that it kind of combats this idea that we think, you know, in summer, we need to give kids who live in urban environments, the opportunity to see what the country is like. And I mean, that, that is true. But I also, I, I feel like there's this idea that, well, you know, the idyllic summer is rural or country setting and that kids in an urban environment are being deprived of, of something. But this shows that, you know, a cityscape can be just as beautiful and vibrant as a rural one. And it's this sprawling world, but also a very close-knit, intimate, loving one. So there's just so much about this book that I adore. I think it's one that kids are going to really, really enjoy, whether in um, winter or in summer, all, all, um, all 
types of year. Thank you, Manaz. It's, I think lovers of this book would certainly enjoy Jacqueline Woodson's book called The World Belonged to Us from, what, I guess that was last year. Yeah, and it's got it's, it kind of, Yeah, and evokes all the same kind of um, summer joy uh, within these urban environments. And I love what our, our reviewer said, the last line that they offer, or the second to last line, that the author and illustrator offer a refreshing reminder of a pre-internet time when full immersion play was the summer activity and kids took full advantage. And I think even we have different illustrations, different illustrators to these two books, but you can see a lot of similarities in the move, constant movement. And like you said, the predominantly black neighborhood, but I would say the diversity in Jacqueline Woodson's is um, even more wide ranging. You got black, brown and white children and Woodson talks about how the, all the different languages that they're speaking. And it really captures um, that exuberance of summer that you just talked about. Yeah, I think that they're both just really great love letters to summers in the city. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Manaz's pick for the week is Jump In by Shadra Strickland. Thank you so much, Manaz, for that choice and for a little taste of summer and the cold weather. Next, we have nonfiction. Eric, what have you chosen for us? Uh, I chose the latest book from the great film critic David Thompson. It's called Acting Naturally, The Magic and Great Performances. And it kind of sits well with his past three books where he focuses on one specific piece of the movie-making experience. Um, He had three books that came out in the past few years called Sleeping with Strangers, How the Movies Shape Desire, Murder in the Movies, and then A Light in the Dark, A History of Film Directors. So this one, obviously, given the title, focuses on actors. Um, and their performances from a wide, wide variety of works. And anybody who has ever read Thompson uh, knows that his his knowledge is pretty encyclopedic. Of course, he was he was the editor of a few different versions of the bio, biographical dictionary of film. He also wrote a book called "Have You Seen a Personal Introduction to a Thousand Films?" So his you know his expertise is unquestioned, and this is just a great kind of interesting, entertaining look at some of his favorite actors and their performances. Um, He calls Anthony Hopkins a majestic player with an endless appetite for work. And when he's describing On the Waterfront, he calls it a sonata for a great actor pretending to be dumb. So he kind of covers, like I said, a whole variety of works from the classics up to the present. And I think anybody who's a film fan would love this book, along with um, one I talked about a couple weeks ago, Quentin Tarantino's cinema speculation. If you read those in tandem, you're going to get a pretty interesting but varied uh, look at the movies um, from two um, really well-known authoritative figures. Eric, if you're still sitting at home and like not going out to the movie theaters much and, you know, looking for things to stream, is this a good book to have, you know, is it organized in such a way that it would be good to like find things to watch and then read it alongside yes, that? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think you could make your way through it and spend countless hours, you know, looking through the recommendations that he makes, um, watching the performances and then reading his descriptions, um, which, you know, some people accuse him of being self-indulgent and that's occasionally the case, but just the way that he, I mean, his, his, you know, enthusiasm is infectious and put that with his knowledge of the whole filmmaking process. And you have a really, really good picture of um, the movies. That sounds really great. I might try that before winter ends. Yeah, it's a good idea. 
I know just who I'm going to buy this for. Eric's pick for the week. <laughs> right. It's Acting Naturally, The Magic and Great Performances by David Thompson. Thank you, Eric, for that choice. And finally, we have fiction. Lori, what have you chosen for us? I've got a wonderful novel called Western Lane by Chetna Maru. And um, it's a very slim novel. It reminds me a bit of something I recommended last year called The Swimmer by Juliet Suka, a very you know, compact novel with a very strong voice. Um, This book is told by a woman named Gopi. It's a sort of retrospective novel looking back on her life just after her mother died. She was 11 years old. She had two sisters a couple of years older than her. And, you know, here's her father trying to raise these three girls. And when the book opens, Um, They live in Britain. And when the book opens, they have gone up to Edinburgh to visit their aunt and uncle. And the aunt says to their father, you know, the girls are wild. You have to get them under control. The girls overhear her saying to him, you know, why don't you send one of them to come live with us? And he just shuts that right down. But it's always sort of, I think, in the back of everybody's mind. So as soon as they get home from this visit, the dad decides that what he's going to do is they're all going to play squash. It's something that they had already done just sort of recreationally. But now every day after school, they go to Western Lane, which is a sports center where they have a squash court and the girls just start playing. And, you know, and and the dad kind of trains them. They do exercises. They do what they call ghost exercises, doing the same movement over and over without a ball. They watch videos of a very successful young man, a professional player, not much older than them, who hasn't lost a match in, you know, it's like 450 matches. You know, while all of this is going on, there's also just, you know, the girls trying to come to terms with having lost their mother. It actually, strangely enough, I'm, I'm, listening to the audiobook of Spare by Prince Harry right now. And he talks a lot about how for years after his mother died, he kind of convinced himself that she had, she was in hiding, you know, she wanted to get away from the paparazzi and the Royal family. And she was just in hiding. And there's a sort of similar feeling here with these, um, one of the sisters goes out onto the stair landing and speaks in Gujarati because that's the language that she spoke with her mother and just, you know, trying to find her mother. Where is she? You know, what's their relation to her now that she's gone? Um, you know, it's sort of very moving. So the whole reason for the obsessive squash playing came, you know, started out as a way to keep the immediate family together, but then Gopi, who's the narrator, becomes much better at it than her sisters and becomes much more, it becomes much a bigger part of her identity. And that kind of starts to break the family apart to some degree. So it's a beautifully observed and subtle book. You know, this sort of retrospective narration is beautifully layered and, you know, kind of learning things the way they happened back then with this overlay of Gopi's adult knowledge. It's very subtle and beautifully done. A very, very lovely book. Laurie, I was really intrigued when I um, read that it had a child narrator because I feel like 
in adult fiction that can be very hard to pull off and, you know, have the child sound authentically childlike and also make the book sort of complex in a way that's appealing to adult readers. But it reminded me of one um, I just absolutely loved. It's called Stolen by Angelian Listadius, um, translated from Swedish by Rachel Wilson Broyles. And it focuses on a Sami family and hate crimes by um, local Swedish people and the police sort of downplaying the Sami as victims of persecution. And it was actually in Sweden, it was voted book of the year a couple of years ago, which is an honor chosen by readers. But the one of the central characters is a nine-year-old girl named Elsa, whose reindeer is um, viciously killed. And it's just, it's so intense and it's so well done. And having the child sort of at the heart of the story just makes it really effective. That sounds great. Yeah, it is always a challenge. And, you know, and also sort of what's the difference between just a child's narration and a narration from an adult narrating as a child, looking back at her childhood, but sort of putting herself right into it. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Lori's pick for the week is Western Lane by Chetna Maru. Thank you, Lori, for that choice. Well, that does it for another episode of Fully Booked. Thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, please join us again next week when my guest will be YA and middle grade superstar Roshni Chakshi. We'll be discussing The Last Tale of the Flower Bride, her first novel for adult readers. Kirkus calls it a singular, unforgettable tale of love and magic. Starred review. Cannot wait for that conversation. But until then, you know what to do. Turn this thing off and go read a book. Thanks for listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Check out new episodes every Tuesday at podcastone.com, on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes. <laughs>